Hey, Alex. Alexander Schmidt podcast episode 029. I'm here with Miss Sarah Miller, who I think you just saw heard there. Hey, Sarah, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Alex? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us from the East Coast. Um, out here on the West Coast, it's still pretty early, just after the teaching day. But you, you've had uh, you've had some downtime. It's about what seven o'clock there now, right? It is. It's quarter after seven or so. We've had an afternoon and in the evening, and yeah, after a long day. Well, that's wonderful because uh, well, you're you're expanding our demographics in several ways on this podcast right now. Not only are you East Coast time and our first private school teacher, but you're also <laughs> proving that the. Uh, the patriarchy of Wesley Shantz and I, uh, the boys club has been broken up. And so now we're getting some diversity, not simply of opinion, but of gender as well. So yeah. very interesting. I spend my days smashing that patriarchy, I feel like, in my own small little way. So, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you teach and what you teach? Um, because you walk, a, you walk a slightly different path from me. I'm at a charter school out in California. And I've been blessed or lucky enough to do, you know, to teach the great books, but it's a, it's a secular school and it's a public school, though it is charter. So we are, where do you teach and what do you teach? Uh, yeah, so I teach at a high school in Washington, D.C. Uh, called Gonzaga College High School. It is an all boys Jesuit college prep school. So that means it's Catholic, private, um, it, the all boys piece was something that when I started there um, over eight years ago, I sort of balked at because I went to a co-ed Jesuit school in Seattle and we all, we always sort of made fun of the kids who went to all boys schools because they didn't really know how to talk to girls. <laughs> that, that, that can be true of or they boys were like, at, at regular schools too. <laughs> or they were like meathead, jockhead, jock, jocks or whatever. And, um, you know, both of those are, are definite stereotypes that I encounter, but uh, I found that in my time there, it's they're really incomplete um, visions of what all boys education can provide a young man. It's definitely not the type of institution I think every boy would succeed at uh, in the ages of 14 to 18, but there are some real <clears throat> developmental realities for, for which um, an all boys school is a virtue. Um, and, and what, what do you mean exactly by developmental realities so, there? So, for example, um, I taught co-ed for a couple years in Chicago before this. And things like um, the ability to sit still for more than 10 minutes or, okay. um, or, or um, the neatness of handwriting. I think it, in a right. traditional classroom, especially when a teacher is not sensitive to how boys and girls are different, say at the age of 14 or 16 or 18, um, they just might um, unfairly and almost naturally compare a 14-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. Well, chemically, developmentally, they're just not necessarily at the same place. Now, that's not true for all boys, and it's not true for all girls. Um, all of these 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 uh, gender general uh, gender differences—they're super generalized. Um, but you know. The, the truth is, is well, it, it actually it sounds like you're not simply spouting off generalities, but yeah. that you have actually acquired several experiences and can now conceptualize based on those experiences, real differences that you have observed in the classroom yeah. where you have to keenly observe 
young men and women and especially keenly observe the differences in their abilities yeah. at that age. Is that a correct assessment of what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm by no means an expert. I haven't done all the reading. I, and I, I, I think it was sure, but you're in the field. You're you're not saying you're not trying to claim a large body of research behind you. You're trying to report on your experience from what you've seen. Right. And in order, in order to be fair, right. So you are claiming these distinctions in order to be fairer to boys because they do worse than girls because they do not yet embody the same level of articulation as they do often illustrated in poor handwriting often difficulty sitting still. In fact, we found some biological reasons for the difficulty sitting still um, uh, part. Boys are on average more aggressive than there are girls. And this can be, this can be shown uh, simply by uh, looking to prison Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of people, I think it's, it's 99%. It's either, it's at least 90, probably 99% male. And so what does that indicate that at the top end of the normal distribution, the everybody the most aggressive humans are always men. Mm -hmm. So men can be more aggressive than women can on, uh, to an extreme average. Yeah. And so, and and so like from my perspective, um, it, 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 it's less about, um, what they can't do and more about, well, what, what's going to make boys respond to, um, questions or material or subjects or topics that they may not otherwise be jazzed about. So, I mean, I teach English and um, in my senior class right now, I also teach some classical philosophy. Um, And, you know, not every day are they jazzed about class. They want to talk about um, last night's game or um, some new video game, or they want to talk about something else. Um, And, and finding ways to make what, what, who they are, um, as a, as a window into, or I guess a doorway into what they need to learn, um, you know, per our curriculum and our decisions about what they, (laughs) what we think is important that they learn, um, things like, um, using competition as a, as a tool for managing behavior and, um, incentivizing effort. It's, that's great. I was going to say competition is the best possible thing. I mean, it's, we found out my, my, one of the way it's revolutionized the way that I manage a classroom. Um, it's revolutionized the way that um, I think about cultivating uh, community within the classroom. Um, I've seen um, other teachers kind of take it to the next level um, with like a much more gamified system um, within the classroom and then across class sections. And that works and to an, an enormous degree. I, I, I haven't seen it in a girl's school, so I can't speak uh, to that, but um, to make use of something that boys love, like video games, and n- again, not universally, but that so many of them know something about, and then to to apply that structure to the to the adventure of learning, um, is a way for them to be um, equipped with uh, uh, equipped with a sense of confidence that, like, yeah, I can do this, um, or yeah, well, this, yeah, and uh, this it's is interesting in my because ballpark, you know. We've actually found out that competition, and it's funny for modern relativistic claims based on nonsense and not on science, um, we found that the competition circuit is 350 million years old inside of us, that we share it with lobsters, it's serotonergically governed, which means that 
And since we've also figured out some very interesting things too, that for example, we all exist within a dominance hierarchy, which also goes back to uh, lobsters in which we're keenly aware of status Mm -hmm. and males are rewarded for competing successfully by increased amount of female attention Mm -hmm. and that and you know somebody can try and argue that a little bit but it's like well no that's a major difference between us and chimpanzees we have choosy maters and in fact we honor that through the institution of marriage Mm -hmm. like it's it's so embodied within us that it's one of the holiest things that we keep and so uh, then cherish so then when you're in an uh, when i'm in school like i'm in an environment where they don't have they're not competing for the attention of women or girls in the classroom and so now, well, right. So, 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 so actually that, so that's part of it. So the men are always, the men are always in competition with each other because they're chose, chosen by the women to mate. So it doesn't matter where they are. They have been selected for in order to compete. Mm-hmm. And so to be at the top is where the resources are mm-hmm. always, yeah. which will lead to in the future, increased amounts of uh or, or increased selection availability yeah you might say and so, and so it so it's so deeply ingrained in them that it doesn't matter where they go the other thing that's sort of a and so an interesting kind of not paradox but maybe a something that cuts across that is that a really important part of where i am is our catholic identity right so um and not just catholic but like um really in the vein of the ignatian charism for education and care for the whole person and questions of um, how what we're learning has relevance to or um, can be brought to bear upon the social and political realities of our world. And so asking them to, to participate in this kind of individualized competition um, to be the best, to be the fastest, strongest, whatever. Um, uh, but also we, we from, a very be- from the very beginning, um, are a, a school that's really built on an idea of fraternity and um, community. So uh, again, again, like team competitions, obviously, but um, are important. But uh, right. But 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 the the philosophy of the school is that they we're trying to graduate young men who are foreign with others. So well, that makes perfect sense too. Because competition, you know that that implies. Well, I see it as circumscribing the competition. Yeah. In order to actually have a competition, That's you need fair. to set boundaries and rules. And then so there's a larger competition than simply doing well in school, right? And, yeah. and you actually called it to be a gentleman, which is interesting because that's a taboo term these days. But I would say that's exactly the right, ta- that's the right idea because that's, that's the competent individual who gets invited to the most amount of games. That's the person <laughs> who, who, yeah, right? right? So they get invited to game night. They get invited to this sport, that sport, because they're good at them. They get invited on this date. They get invited on this backpacking and trip. They're, and because People, they're not that what? guy, you know? Um, well, yes, because they are because they are a gentleman. They are competent across dominance hierarchies. You might say they are capable of playing many multifaceted games with different sorts of individuals in appropriate ways. That it makes them good to be around. It makes yeah. them enjoyable to be around in diverse situations. That strikes me as an extraordinarily useful and good thing yeah. for somebody to learn with their time, rather than the fact that because they're aggressive, they're therefore evil and they should repress everything that's natural right. in them. So we, uh, we, uh, we're, um, we're, uh, it's an, and we're also like located in an interesting place. We're um, about eight blocks north of the United States Capitol. Um, wow. And you walk off campus, literally turn to your right on the sidewalk and you can see the building. But Our symbol of the dominance hierarchy. A, a symbol of the dominance hierarchy. Doesn't it have a golden roof? Sorry? Yeah. 
Doesn't it have a golden ceiling? Um, a golden. It, there's probably some gold in the inside. I mean, the it, like uh, there's certainly the painting of the apotheosis of Washington. Everything's giant and like. Um, and evidence of our victories and whatever. Well, in the apotheosis of Washington, that's pretty good because that actually is the dominant hierarchy, right? Because <laughs> right. that's what's setting our ideal top guy, right? Um, the guy who can turn down being king and be president and boom, ideal American, there he is. And so he's, he's, he may be, to use your, your phrase, the, the dominance, the, the dominant hierarchy the dominance hierarchy yeah. i got it from jordan b peterson wes and i talk about it we use it all the time so it's normal parlance so to so us, to so. use to use that yeah that's that's what it is for the american man and then we also temper that or challenge that really with like the figure of christ sure. and the figures of ignatius and and uh and uh gonzaga and uh you know other jesuit saints in particular but you know other figures within our church so like you know trying to teach them um, how to be men like in the world and of the world, but not of the world. Uh, so in it, but not of it. Um, people who can, can navigate the, the world of Washington and the world that's beneath the world of Washington. So like you turn to the right and you see the Capitol building and you turn to the left and uh, literally within four blocks, there's section eight housing and um, an enormous amount of poverty, idleness, unemployment, um, I would argue despair as the consequence of a lot of those um, social factors. And, um, you know, they're, they're really at the, um, an, uh, an interface between poverty and power at the school. Um, we have a, a homeless shelter or drop-in center for homeless men um, in the basement of the church that's on campus. So, uh, and then a lot of our students take the Metro to get to school. So, from the metro to Gonzaga, you cannot get there without walking past someone who is experiencing homelessness, um, usually a man. And um, and that is a really important part of like their experience. And we, I, you know, I talk about it a lot with them about like, um, you know, what 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 are you going to do with this this experience that you have, this place that you're asked to be able to be a part of. Yeah, you're like our guys, our students are going to be walking halls of walking in the halls of power. Even if it's like a business or a, a law firm or a, a hospital or or they're going to be charting some new course in some new industry that I don't even know about, but um they're also like we're also asking for them to be um walking the halls of the margins as well. And and that's a so, really So important. you're not asking them to be in the margins we're not to be poor to, in these ways we're not asking we're not saying that that's that that um you know be, that would be the franciscan model like cast off everything and right and 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 go be poor and and that is the only way to serve um to, no, mar so to be I married think, to poverty yeah i think the idea is or certainly in the in the jesuit world that is not um, the way they see their vocation Jesuits there's a joke that the Jesuits have um, uh, vows of poverty chastity and obedience and the only one that really matters is chastity because they're really not that obedient and they don't live a a poor life um, well, so something kind of interesting about what you said is that you you mentioned that these are people are going to walk the walls of power and you talked about your Catholic identity but not your Christian identity really but um you know I just recall that saying of Jesus that says but it'll be easier for you to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man mm -hmm. to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so do you find the Catholicism more of an apology against this fact of life? 
Um, because it, it seems like these, these, these are clearly people who come from privilege and are going to be privileged. Yeah. yeah most and of so them. is the idea that they should feel bad about their privilege or, or, no. I mean, I think, I think, that, or should they, should they understand what true privilege is? Right. Like, I think, I think that that's, that's the, go- I mean, isn't that, isn't that one of the goals of what we're doing is that is, or certainly I would, I would submit that that the goal, one of, one of the many things we're trying to do by the end of this four-year high school experience is, uh, and, and all, all of this is to also suggest, you know, in the background that there's only so much that a school can do. Um, sure, of I course. I really do think that if some of the things- The parents talking, are the first. Yeah, if, if, and the last, you know, I would say like if, if there's, uh, at the end of the day, if there's something that we're trying to do at school that's not at all reinforced at home or is um, contradicted at home. I mean, that's fighting the ocean. Um, but, but I'm legitimately interested in how, how you might have to confront yeah. that issue. So, um, so, but to your question about the, about faith, um, I don't think, uh, faith is a way of making them feel bad for what they or like the religion, the religious aspects of our education, um, framework in our school is a way of making them feel bad. I think well, I wasn't, I don't think I was questioning faith. And I, I think, I think what I was wondering was whether, whether the idea of um, whether um, the the regard for the poor mm-hmm. was an attempt to make the students feel a certain way about the fact oh. that they have privilege, I think. And I think- what exactly is that? What exactly is that feeling? I tried to connect that to the idea of the the Matthew quote yeah. um, that it would be easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of the needle. Is 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 that being parsed out for them really? Like, yeah, so what, so, what's that supposed to mean really? So, so, you know, so, so much of the Bible has these quotes about like the, the rich man and the, like the, the eye of the needle or the young, the young rich man who Jesus tells, like, um, he says, like, he's done all the stuff. He's, he's done all the studies. He, um, does everything. He, you know, he follows the rules and he says, what must I do to gain the kingdom? And Jesus says, give away all your possessions and come and follow me. And yes, and he walks away sad. The young rich man does because he doesn't want to give away his possessions. And we definitely have these conversations at school about um, about about what is going on there. Like, is is Jesus saying that you can't be rich and be saved? And I don't. Yeah, I'm interested in that. That's not how I, that's certainly not how I understand those passages. Um and that's not how I understand our encouragement for the our guys to participate in service. So one of the things that I, I go with them like once a month, usually maybe once every six weeks um, with three sophomores on a Wednesday night, we go on a mobile soup kitchen called McKenna's wagon. And um, uh, it's uh, associated with father Horace McKenna, who was a Jesuit who um, kind of made a name for himself for serving the poor and the destitute in um, the DC area in the 60s, 70s, and 80s during the race riots, uh, the rise of um, incredible amounts of poverty and um, the rise of the war on drugs against the black community in our city. So um, he made a name for himself and a lot of social services um, inspired by his work are are named for him. So we go on McKenna's wagon and um, we go to two stops and give away hot food and cold food and um, it, you know, the two stops that we take the kids on with this wagon are, are literally next to the white house and, um, on our, are, are next to the world bank and, and the white house. 
Um, and, and on the way back, it's not a question about like, you know, did you give from your excess? But what we're interested in with that, with an encounter with the marginalized of any kind, the marginalized could be the disabled, uh, the elderly and alone, the sick, sure, sure, the, sure. the poor, the homeless, the um, mentally challenged, et cetera. Um, any encounter with the, the marginalized, we are more interested in the young men encountering them as human um, and finding their own humanity um, allied or um, intimately tied to the humanity of the other. So the, the homeless man or the migrant woman um, in Apopka, Florida, where we send a group of students to, to work alongside farm workers or. Um, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Let me, let me jump in. Let me jump in. There's yeah. a, there's a, there's a very interesting story of, you know, your, your, your school's movements throughout uh, their social, their social agenda. It's very clear what's happening. Very good. And so, uh, but I want to jump into that question a little deeper I, is, is what you're, looking for from your students not to feel bad about that which they have but to realize that true wealth is to give rather than true wealth is measured by what you have sort yeah. of like so I that that strikes me as a great lesson I because think that's part of what what they're looking for i think another part of it is that a proper understanding of who they are isn't at all tied to what they have um even if what they have is something they earned like a, a so paycheck? by that, do you mean that that's not all that they are? So like they're Catholic and therefore joined to like yeah, impoverished so brother as well as wealthy, like yeah, aristocrat. So like the rich young man, for example, um, or the, the, the rich man who cannot needle or something like that. Um, I think one of the, the way that I've always um, heard that described, it, and to be fair, I've heard it um explained in front of a fairly rich audience and you know what sure. what priest what priest wants to offend his rich audience by saying he can't be rich anymore um so uh, um i think there probably are by the way some radical priests who would say like yeah there's a point at which catholics can't own 20 bentleys um it's not okay that's a that's a that's a misuse of wealth but um but the point our, our goal is to get them to properly understand their own like like foundational and important identity, like which is not tied to where you're born. Um, like like where you're born does have, have an effect on who you are, of course. Sure. Um, but but the most important part or salient part of one's identity as a Catholic is child of God. Um, and and like how do you understand that, that exactly? I'm I'm pretty interested in that. So something we try and do on the show is we try and we try and take a look at the expressions we use every day and see what we mean by them because mm -hmm. they're just so interesting. So like, you know, and I'm not trying to really push you so, so much on that so much as, you know, what, what sort of you, do you feel and think when you say that, that expression child of God, because I, I've noticed that sometimes using those sorts of expressions, depending on company, they can be polarizing because mm -hmm. uh, people, yeah. people on both in, ends of it, they, they misunderstand how it's being used how those terms are being used and it's like you're yeah. talking to another human so it probably does mean something right so right. you know i i just want to what does that mean exactly because or to you well i'm, I'm sure i'm mean. sure yeah i'm i'm not an expert i'm no theologian sure. right. so yeah. some yeah. theologians yeah. listening and they're like no that's totally wrong i'm sorry if that uh, there's a theologian listening we're doing something right here <laughs> uh, that's right 
Um, so to me, a child of God means a couple things. Um, it's sort of a, that's a phrase that, um, a teacher of mine in, in grade school used to say, like, um, so it, it means that, um, uh, who we are is, um, beloved. Okay. Is known like intimately, like the way a parent knows a child, um, is, uh, protected, but not, not from suffering, but in suffering. Hmm. Um, so I don't think that um, that that we are, nor should we, um, always be shielded from pain. I think pain is instructive, and um, that's what the cross means, right? Yes, yes. And so, and so, to be a child of God means to not be alone in suffering, um, but to be like seen for one's um, like innate goodness and beauty. I mean. I, I'm, I'm in the process, and I'm sure you are too, of, of watching some of my friends become parents for the first time. Mm. And um, the way they talk about it and the way they just, the way they look at their child, um, kind of intimate, intimate bond is what I think we, we want all of our guys to know that they can have, um, that, that, that God feels for them without them doing anything about it. Um, they don't have to accept Jesus as their Lord and personal savior. That's not what we're doing, but um, for them to come to know themselves and then to come to know the other, whoever the other is might be a kid in another school. It might be a kid on uh, somebody on the street for them to see that the other is beloved of God in the same way that you are. As soon as you see that. And by see, I mean, maybe you don't see it with your eyes, but you see it like more internally, you feel it. Um, cause that's what our, our services, our service program is designed to do is designed to elicit an emotional experience that you then think about and try to make meaning. So that's really interesting. So I can see how that could connect directly to your working with those who are impoverished. Yeah. So if the three tenets of being a child of, of God are, are, um, are, are to be beloved, known and protected then that means that each person is beloved, known, and protected. And right. once you understand that about yourself, you understand it about everybody else and by whom are they beloved, right. um, protected, and, and, and known? Well, of course, by the divine. And so that means that each person has individual, has individual uh, uh, um, uh, dignity and value given, conferred on them by the divine. I can, you, know, you can even see this notion underlying our, our, our democratic system. Right as well. And so when you see that, it draws you closer to each person around you, regardless of what your status is. And so you show them the people who uh, they would be least likely ever to associate with in any yeah. possible time. And you say, well, they've got, you know, the belovedness, the knownness and the protectedness too. And you, you know, insofar as you can recognize that in them, perhaps you can know yourself better right that's and then so that's what i meant when i say like come to know yes. like a deeper or truer sense of who who we are as individuals and i For sure. like, and you know i think that in the in theology this is called you know made in the image and likeness of god um, okay other day right or something like that but but yeah like and and so the the wider they understand that that the conferral of that um uh childhood like the more people 
um, and kinds of people that they can understand are um, in their in their community. I think the the less likely we are to draw lines and 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 boundaries where people are left outside. Uh, well, you know, Jesus washes the feet. You know, what does that mean exactly? I think that means you have to you have to you have to continue to. Then there's an Old Testament message too, right? You have yeah. to keep tending to the women and the children and the poor. Yeah. Um, and that that's the why why does a state even exist? It it often limits those who are at the top of it, but it provides protections for those who are at the bottom. And that's the whole reason we have one, mm-hmm. I would say, uh, besides as an edifice of war with other, uh, with other individuals. States. Right. Um, but the, I mean, obviously the state exists to help the people out when they're having a tough time. Um, though I wouldn't say not, I'm not making a necessarily political um, point there so much as it's like, who does the boat benefit the most, the weakest rower or the strongest w- rower? And well, I guess suppose I guess the answer is you you would want the least difference as possible between yeah. each rower. And I mean, ideally, everybody best. benefits from the boat. Yeah, and so actually, that's uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, and so, every, and so that's yeah, because the biggest rower still needs the boat. That's for sure, and needs everybody else there too. Well, and where, so- if, if the biggest rower, I mean, so to use the, my students as an example, and, and I talk sure. about this when I teach. So I teach a, a, a course in classic literature um, in the fall of their senior year. And I teach a, a, a course in fantasy literature in the spring. Cool. And, um, you know, when we talk about like uh, ancient Greek, and I also teach a honor sophomore English um, in the, in the fall, it's British literature in the spring. It's uh world literature where we like shoehorn in Oedipus and Antigone at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. But w- at, at various points, like even when we're talking about when we're reading a tale of two cities or Oedipus, the King and Antigone, where the ship metaphor is like, so, so huge, that idea that the city is a ship. Um, when we're reading the Iliad or, or Florence and what Dante's doing with uh, the city of Florence and the falsifiers and all of that, or when we read Hamlet and we talk about the city or the, the castle of Denmark, um, I try and get them to see themselves as members of a, of a, of a city state or a, a, a city of any kind, a civic unit of any kind, a neighborhood, a city, a, a state. Um, and that as people who are literally, for the most part, born at the top, um, I want them to see that the inclusion of someone um, who isn't born at the top is beneficial to you. And, um, and like they, they therefore belong in the state with you now, now how that state is organized and, you know, what types of, you know, all that stuff is beside the point, but that like uh, this, that I would submit that I would submit that this, um, this kind of learning is very political, just not in the Republican or democratic sense that, that but more in the platonic yeah, sense or the much more, much more oh, in that sense. In fact, we found out that our very visual perception is tied to our social environment. And this is one of the reasons why like children will draw faces on everything mm-hmm. and why we say there's the man and the moon, because we're naturally adapted to the people around us, yeah. not to the environment at all. Uh, well, to some extent, we have to survive within it. But if you look at us, what is our natural environment? We can live on Antarctica. We can live in Africa. We can live on, you know, California or in, uh, you know, out on the East Coast. We can live on a mountain. We can live on the water. You know, right? We can live anywhere. 
Uh, but but again, then we have quotes like, but no man would, you know, but a man would give up all else except a friend and Aristotle. Mm-hmm. That our natural environment is a social environment, which is in fact what he and Plato claim. Um, and so your guys seem to start at the top of that environment and right. strike me as extremely important to educate with the appropriate values of the society. And it does sound like the uh, part of what your Catholic identity does is to indicate that for one, there are people at the bottom for two, they have importance for three. You need to know they exist really. And that um, your, and should- your, your ultimate good is bound up in, in them as well as in other. Because they're part of um, and need, you want yeah. them rowing. Yeah, that's right. That's and then right. they're feeling valuable too. And they, they are offering value because I don't think part of what your claim is, is that people don't have differing levels of competency and people, I mean, no. Obviously, everybody can do good. How much good would be a real question. Could you me- yeah. necessarily measure it yourself? Probably not, for yeah. sure. But does that mm-hmm. mean there aren't different levels? I don't think so. Right. You know, uh, I think, right. and you know, I think the people that are at the top, the reason why you care so much about giving them these values is that potentially they can do the most good or harm on the other right. end. Right. So that that yeah, that's that's an important part of what we're doing. Is like they have capacity that that some of them don't even know, right? They don't even know how much they have. Um, and it can be frightening, I think. And, and what's, I mean, yeah, um, uh, doing really terrible things is horrible, but I think the wasted potential to do a lot of good is also yes. really uh, upsetting. I mean, the most good, that's for sure. Yeah, Not that's people a, yeah. actively malevolent and evil. That would take people being active and focused and disciplined. For sure, mm-hmm. lose it on the on the potential end, and and I I think um you know some of, at least currently, I don't know about you or how your students are these days, but February is the, like so hard for them, and they are, it's a rough time. It always it's is. It's easier out where I am because it's beautiful weather. Yeah, but it's still kind of rough. I mean, what's yeah. it like in DC right now? You must be covered in snow and cold and feeling We're terrible. Not- it's not covered in snow. We've had a few snow days, which are like absolutely ridiculous because we go by some like suburban county where a lot of our guys live. And uh-huh. so, but like they haven't really been real snow days. It's been like an ice day. Like, oh my God, like there's ice yeah. on the ground, you know? Yeah. Uh, we, we had those where I grew up occasionally, Atlanta. Yeah. So it's like a, um, every now and then um, we'll get a real snowstorm here and that's pretty fun, but we haven't had one yet and it's the middle of February. And at this point, I'm really hoping we don't get one because. Right. It, it, yeah. We've already lost enough days to the ice and like these no storms. And, um, and, and then, you know, I also, I thought it were, it's weird when it's March and you have like an, a, you know, a blizzard, that's not normal. Um, unless, you're living in Maine. Um, it's not normal in the Mid-Atlantic. So, um, so what are what are you teaching these days? Are you are you covering? Are you you're not still doing Dante? Are you? Yeah. Well, so believe it or not, so when I found out that I um, that the Italians spend a year on each canticle on the Inferno for one oh. year, the Purgatorio one year, and the Paradiso one year, um, or at least an Italian date of mine made that claim. Uh-huh. Who knows whether she. <laughs> but who would lie about that sort of thing? Right. And so, um, so I, I've had the luxury to uh, spend the first semester on the Inferno and the Purgatorio, and now we're, we're about, we're just past halfway into the Paradiso. In fact, I was okay. 
I was in the holy sphere of Mars just today talking about the living crucifix embodied by the living souls that are constantly changing place while maintaining the same form within the red planet. And we were considering, yeah, I know. And the students are so brilliant. We're considering thoughts like these, like, like why, why is, what does the red of Mars indicate with the holy warriors, the violence in which they, 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 they enacted their lives and what they embodied or, or the charity with which they all gave their lives as martyr. And hmm. it's like, boom, oh man, I think it joins both those together actually. And well, gosh, that's incredible. And it's like, why are they, why are they up there if they were fighters and violent and mean? It's like, well, actually they were martyrs. They were people who gave their lives for what they believed in. And, you know, I, I recall that being a Pauline argument for the existence of the divine. And I, I think that is a fairly provocative argument for anything a human mm-hmm. could make. If you are willing to sacrifice your life for something, does it have transcendent value? Yeah. Answer. Yes, it has to, because yeah. what else would you sacrifice your life? for? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think even to some extent uh, at the negative example, and I, I bring this up, especially today with 19 dead in Florida, okay. that that's exactly what, a mass shooting is trying to represent the existence of malevolence in the world to yeah. shock people out of their, their good natured assumptions about people and things and to show just how violent we can be even to each other. Yeah. It's so, so, I mean, it's just, it's without order to me. It's like that, that to me, it's like, completely disordered. It is. It an attempt like, at it's, I mean, I don't know what the word is. It's not, I mean, it's the height of, um, uh, out of out of placeness um yes yeah it's trying to throw discord into order it's trying to express pure hate and something so much hate in a system that bolstered someone up that hopefully it could collapse it's like the massive resentment hmm which is interesting because that's why those individual efforts by by shooters they're they're so unsuccessful it's like no, you have to be more like the Soviet Union where you put people in camps who don't deserve to be in the tens of millions. And yeah. then you'll probably collapse because of the collective resentment of your own people. That's for sure. And it's like, oof. And you know, it's funny where I was actually talking to the students a little bit about this. And I was like, do you know often why these uh, killers commit suicide? Tonight? And it's just some insight into the act of evil itself, which is this, which is, well, if they gave some account, do you think you'd understand why they did it a little better? Like, I'm not saying justify it necessarily, but if somebody said, you know, they were beaten and abused, totally terrible things happened to them for like 15 straight years, and then they did something like this, I think you'd be like, I wouldn't have done it in their shoes. Who knows? But I understand a little more. But if they, mm-hmm. but if they commit suicide afterwards, it's, well, what do they deny us? Any account of why they did it, any explanation, which is totally uh, disorienting for us, right? That's sort of like yeah. Dante in Dark Wood when he first starts. It's like, I didn't see this coming at all, I had, and I have no idea why it happened. Right. And oh, it's like, you don't, that's literally or figuratively, actually, but seemingly literally, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not up or down. Kind of like that expression I just gave. Yeah. But I mean, that's disorientation, I would say. It's just like, oh my gosh, how did this thing that I didn't even know could happen, happen? And and now I don't know the reason why. And now I can never know why. And now we have to deal with the consequences of it too. So we have to be actually 
very ordered and good to each other in a moment after pure chaos. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. It's terrible. It's terrible that these sorts of things keep happening too. And yeah. I try. And- do you guys do, the- do you guys do drills at your school for like uh, intruders or guns, like shooting drills? <laughs> Not all the time, but I think we do the uh, legally mandated and appropriate amount. We're all sort of aware of, our legal responsibilities and how we're supposed to conduct ourselves. And, and, but we don't, it's not like, it's not like we're constantly getting under our desks. Like we're preparing yeah. for thermonuclear in uh, destruction. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it, do, it's, you guys, it's, do you guys have a, a shooting specific drill? Cause I know that there are schools that do now that like there are school districts where like they have their fire drill, their earthquake drill. They, they have a school, they have a shooter drill. We occasionally will have, we have differing sorts. I, I don't know how much I'm even allowed to talk about these, but we have like a couple kind of drills like that, yeah. but nothing where we're doing like, well, nothing yet where we're doing specific maneuvering, but yeah. mostly we do things like fire drills uh, or like generalized intruder drills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Us too. But I'm curious. I mean, just, I'm curious. We don't have a, a firearm specific one yet. Yeah. Um, I, I'm yeah. actually pretty interested in what that would entail and whether that would involve any operations because mostly you just try and keep the kids safe um yeah. and hope that the police get there fast and and they generally they generally do um yeah they generally do yeah. um fire department too it's nice it's good um yeah. Yeah, so but there, you, you guys are reading again with with chaos that yeah. would uh, <laughs> if we did not have these wonderful services it's like oh god yeah chaos right right exactly exactly it's like these situations it's funny, this situation, ultimately, if you look at it in the right way, it's, well, that person, a, a stop was put to them, and there are people now working very hard to put people's lives back together and to get them healthy and to get their bodies healthy now. And those are all forces of good, you might say, people people in society who are trying to help people out. And, um, and, and well, even though this atrocity happens, it's bringing the good out of people. Where people are responding with the best they have. Well, you know, so that, that even that up, proves there's good. That brings up something interesting. Like, um, uh, and I, so I'm teaching um, one of my favorite books right now, which is the narrative of the life of a slave by Frederick Douglass. Have you? Did you have to read it in like college or? No, I don't think it's at St. John's. Um, it's so good. Uh, it's it's perfect for this particular age. Um, it's with the honor sophomores. It's a really like linguistically challenging text. Okay. Um, and then when you add in the fact that he was, he was a slave and taught himself to read and write, it's all the more impressive um, that, you know, somebody who didn't have the benefit of a traditional education can write like that. And For sure. he, he, he employs so much religious imagery and um, religious language uh, because one of his arguments is, is to point out like the massive hypocrisy of the religious justification for slavery in the South at the time. But um, so it's also today's his birthday or the, the day that he celebrated his birthday and it would be his 200th birthday today. Happy birthday, um, Frederick Douglass. Happy birthday, Frederick Douglass. Um, he, he never knew what his real birthday was, but he picked Valentine's Day just like at kind of as a goof or as a gimmick. Um, <laughs> and um, anyway, so, he was um, he was held as a slave um, 
here or like ne- nearby in Maryland, about an hour away from Gonzaga's campus in a place called St. Michael's. And it's on the Eastern shore, just past like Solomon, like Solomon's Island. I mean, like basically you go to Annapolis and you keep going for like double the time that it took to get, or like another half hour that it took to get you there um, from DC. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's super interesting because it's really local. Um, but then, this past summer, um, uh, well, you know that like a couple years ago, um, Georgetown uh, released like a report acknowledging the sale of 272 enslaved persons, the profit of whom enabled Georgetown to like buy parts of its campus. Um, do you remember hearing that? And they're they're going through this process. Rock, but now I know. Yeah. So. <laughs> It, so it, it came out a couple years ago and they're going through this process of attempts at like uh, reconciliation, um, not reparations financially per se, but I know that Georgetown has offered um, like free tuition basically, or like uh, remitted tuition to anybody who can demonstrate a familial lineage with the 272 people who were enslaved um, and then sold. So there are people now at Georgetown industrious enough to look that sort of thing up then yeah there are exactly people, what there's, there's like a current freshman who's like in her 60s and going to georgetown for free um that's so, pretty cool yeah so georgetown was a member of the same or georgetown was governed by the maryland province of jesuits and um uh so was gonzaga or what used to be called um gonzaga college which was a seminary in like the 1820s it was founded in 1821 and it was, you know, if the Maryland province had slaves um, that Georgetown benefited from, um, basically one of my coworkers brought the history professor from Georgetown to talk to his students. And it sort of inspired this uh, these like six or seven students to go to Georgetown this past summer and to look through accounting books and ledgers and letters and all of these um, kind of primary source historical documents that Georgetown has access to, um, to ask the question of, you know, did our school um, benefit from slave labor? Were there slaves uh, or enslaved persons at our school ever? Um, And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, And that's what they found. And they spent two weeks at Georgetown and they found um, like, like irrefutable evidence showing the movement of money and food and persons uh, between these plantations out on the eastern shore of Maryland and um, uh, the the Maryland provinces' uh, properties um, in in the D- what is now DC area, so Gonzaga College, Georgetown Prep, and Georgetown University. And um, anyway, it's this, it's a remarkable presentation. I had a couple of the students come in and give it to my sophomores as we were reading Frederick Douglass, because the truth is, is like where, where the province owned slaves and, and used them out on the plantations was probably within five, maybe seven miles of where Douglass would have been a slave. Um, and so just so close, like so, like so proximate um, to their lives and yet so not at all <laughs> close to their lives. And then, um, 
And then we had this discussion yesterday that just blew my mind. It's like the type of shit that I, sorry, are we allowed to swear? I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> it's like the type of shit that like I live for as a teacher, you know, like that teachable moment where something that you're doing in some old archaic or seemingly yes. archaic text gets really relevant to your day. Like in the, in the wake of the election, when we were reading, the inferno and like we had a conversation about being each other's keeper and how Cain fails there and sort of the 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 sinners in the vestibule of hell also failed to be anybody's keeper um and those types of teachable moments where like something becomes just real like real imminent real fast um we talked about like um uh, all kinds of things yesterday. The kids had all kinds of questions about like how important it is to ask questions that are maybe going to get you an ugly answer um, and how you have to ask the questions anyway, or um, you know, uh, how do we make a memorial for this? How do we like remember this kind of thing? Um, well, I think the important thing is to remember these sorts of things because this tells one exactly what human nature is and that, yeah which does not change. And so regardless of one's social or political stance to not acknowledge history is simply to forget what's true about humans. Right. And that doesn't seem to do much good for any humans, regardless of their political motivations. And one, I mean, and one thing that one of my students, like he's super awkward and he, um, <laughs> he stopped, stopped me after class had or the, ended and the bell had rung. And he'd, he said like, Miss Miller, do you think Gonzaga would exist if, we didn't have slaves or like, do you, th and I said, well, I don't, I don't think it's that simple, Andrew, you know, like I think the way that the evidence that they found was that um, the, the money from um, selling slaves or the labor produced by slaves that yielded a profit furnished, basically furnished the money to purchase the land on which Gonzaga was ultimately uh, built in its first iteration or or people in our school community ate food that was made by enslaved persons you know like I don't know if it's so direct that like you know it wasn't like the selling of human beings but he's he said like do you think that we would be are you suggesting there are demarcations of evil that <laughs> makes you evil <laughs> that's in a foolish perspective it's like why would you not want to make the most dangerous thing clearer yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, obviously, obviously, just like if you taught, you know, if you give me a dime, it's not the same thing as if you give me a thousand dollars. And also, like, I, I also want, I don't want them to go home and to say, <laughs> like, to, to, to miss the nuance. And I'm not trying to, like, minimize what the Maryland province of pre well, The nuance did. is reality. Right. It's not simply it's not simply intellectual flourish. Right. That's the real – the detail is the reality, yeah. not the generalization. And they're already – you know, sophomores are already maybe not so good with nuance. <laughs> and so anyway, – They haven't so, gotten there. So I, was, I tried to give them a little more nuanced perspective, and I said, I'm not excusing what they did. Like, let's be real. These were priests. These were men of the cloth who were who were – either okay with this or didn't know that they could ask a question um, or, you know, like we can chalk it up to the world in which they lived, but that's not good enough for me. And like all these things. And I said, but you know what, Andrew, like I believe in a God that is so much bigger than all of this. And like for every shit thing that human beings do to each other, there is good that like somehow gets drawn out of it that I don't even always understand. And I'm not saying that that justifies 
that's not what you ever say to somebody who just lost a child, right? No, or but like, I get what you're saying because it's like, like who's the I good going to, to come that, from like, if not from us? Yeah, I wanted him to know that like, yes, like this evil that I just made you look at or the consequences of evil that I just made you look at or the evidence of evil, these, these ledgers or whatever. I made you look at that and we're reading this narrative that details evil in a really graphic way at times. I'm forcing you to read it. Um, but I, I don't want you to think that like, that is the end of the story. Um, it's, yeah. And, and, and like, uh, he's super awkward. So, and this is, this is like a little humble brag afterwards. He goes, you know, Miss Miller, there aren't very many times when like, I hear a teacher say something that's going to stick with me. Like, He's so awkward. I, he was trying to pay me a compliment, I think, that he was going no, to that. that. But, but yeah, like, um, just uh, that's a long way of, of kind of connecting to your, your comment about the firefighters and the people who are going to help these people put their lives back together and how good that is. And right. Like, and I, I actually wanted to help close with that. And like the, what I, what I saw from what you were saying there, and I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really happy you saw that connection too because, right, who, if evil is a real presence, which it clearly is if we just open our eyes, right. how much more important is good then? Because right. if we simply act as if evil doesn't exist while evil things happen around us like mass shootings, and one can say that's a relative definition, and it's like, sure, exactly, that's relative to going about your business normally every day or even the petty crimes you commit on the internet through downloading music or movies or whatever you do. Yes, those are different actions. That killing other people, especially at a school, is trespasses on so many no moral norms that it enters the category of evil, which means that there is a contrasting category of good and a demarcated, uh, we can demarcate it and there are differing intensities of it and we certainly need much, much more of it yeah. and not believing in its existence does just, does just as little good as not acknowledging evil's existence right. does to expiate the existence of evil. Which like, is that's like the minister of magic in Harry Potter yeah. refusing to see Voldemort. Which is, I mean, so just so, side note, that's my favorite. Yeah. My that, that's why I teach the fantasy lit classes. Cause we get to talk about good. I mean, we're in the middle of the fellowship of the ring right now. And they're about to like have the council of Elrond and talk about, can the ring be used for good? And yes. that's their reading for tonight. And it's a long ass. We got to talk so, about that. We're, yeah, I mean, well then, well, okay. Well, okay. Just because it'll be impossible for us ever oh. to stop. That is a great, we need to talk about that next time. Then let's yeah, no, talk about Harry good. Potter yeah, Harry and Potter some Lord and of the Rings. Got it. Because I'm watching through the Harry Potters right now, because I want to teach a course on the Harry Potters and the Lord of the Rings. And so I need to ask you a ton of questions oh on air about, oh my goodness. I've taught, well, I've, taught all, I've taught both of those um, or pieces of both of the series for like four or five years now. So, oh, wow. I'm going to ask you, it, you, maybe you can even tell me the questions to ask you because this is going to be a feast. Okay. This yeah. is going to be a real feast, so an means, unexpected feast. Does that mean that I, I get to be asked back for the next one? Yes, I believe. I think we're going to be asking you back, Miss Miller, Miss Sarah Miller. Say hi. Yeah, to, no. Will you um say hi to Wes for me, or if Wes is listening, hey Wes. 
Yeah, Wes, Wes is a big time listener and I will say hi to him. We're, we're scheduled to talk, I think in the next couple days here. Okay. Um, maybe even tomorrow, depending on scheduling. Uh, and so please listen in to us too, because he's, he's for sure going to have something to say about what you had to say as well. And I know that, well, he comes from, he's, he comes from Gaithersburg, which is not super close to DC, but much closer than where I am, even though he's out on the West coast, like I am. Yeah. Now. Well, not technically the coast is he um, in Phoenix. Yeah. He's in the eastern. He moved up to uh, to Washington, and so now he's shut up. That's my hometown. That's my home state. I, I know, I know, I know, I know. You're from Seattle, and he, uh, which I love, and uh, so great. He's in Spokane. He's in Spokane. Oh yeah, cool. Um, All right. Well, sorry, we went over. Let's uh, let's time to be ta- to be continued. To be continued, and well, an unexpected journey and an unexpected feast await us. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being here. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye.